Thanks, Vanessa. Thanks. There will be a PowerPoint, but I'm not going to use that thing to try and operate it. I just can't do that at the same time. If you, I'm a male, you know what I mean? Good to be here again. I feel like I almost have to introduce myself. It seems ages since I've been up preaching in this church, but uh, you know, I've been knocked around a bit by this flu thing, and I don't know if I'm completely over the coughing yet, but God is gracious and we'll keep going anyway. Let's just, uh, let's just pray as we uh, meet the Lord around his word. Loving Father, thanks already for uh, your time with us. Thanks for the way you've touched us already and have met us in song and just quietly listening and and uh, just being blown over, I guess, too, by the things that are happening in our world and, and yet thanking God for the rescue that's been happening through Bloom, for example. And yeah, thanks, Lord. We just, we just bless you that we can be here this morning. We pray that, that you'll equip us for whatever you've got for us as we leave here today. May you speak powerfully to our hearts and, and may we put into action the things that you enable us to do. We ask this for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we begin a new series today, actually, um, the series is called uh, The Commands of Jesus. And uh, the, with the readings that I began to do this, this week, and I think maybe even last week, began to do some readings from a book called, uh, from John Piper's book called uh, What Jesus Demands from the World. It's a good book. Um, some of you may have it or know about it or whatever. I'll say more about that in a minute. But as I started reading through that book, my mind went back to a time when uh, Rosemary and I, with our, two, with our three little children, uh, often used to holiday at Caloundra on the beach. And uh, I've, I've actually shared this story before. I'm sure I've shared it in this church. So if you've heard it before, I'm not really sorry that you're going to hear it again, actually. Because it really impacted me, this particular event. Anyway, to keep it really brief, um, I just happened to meet this guy on the beach. We were there for about a week or so. And I just bumped into this man who was an older guy than me, and um, we just started chatting, and it wasn't long before we found out that we were both Christians. And uh, as we talked, we used to bump into each other, you know, at different times, at different days. And, and uh, it was just lovely. I think God just arranged that. And um, he was a very unwell man, and he shared a bit of his medical history with me. I was in the ambulance service back then. And uh, loved the Lord, um, and he shared a few things, that he, that he had a number of, of strokes uh, over his years and uh, he may not have had that long to go anyway as we talked together about things he said to me one day that really puzzled me he said this he said David when I get to heaven I don't think I'm going to see you there now I knew I was going to be in heaven and I said oh that's interesting John his name was John I said John why do you say that and when I asked him that he lifted up his hand and he got quite emotional he says he says I won't be able to take my eyes off Jesus you know, and yeah, his theology wasn't quite there, but I'll tell you what, his, the sentiment was. Theology may not write, but the sentiment of what he said was spot on. I, I had never heard someone express their love uh, for the Lord and their adoration for him in words like that before. And it was very special for me, and uh, it left a deep impression on me. I didn't see John again, and, and uh, may not see him again, but I reckon one day I will see him in heaven. And most likely I'll have to walk up to him and tap him on the shoulder and say, hey, John, it's me. And I'm sure he'll turn around and say, so what? Just look at Jesus. <laughs> you know, John was what you'd call a passionate follower of Christ. A passionate follower of Christ, which 
happens to be the focus, our focus for this year, is it not? It's the third part of our mission statement. And the mission statement, which we should all know, goes like this, to work with God in... You can say it with me if you like. To work with God in transforming people into passionate followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. Exactly. And in his book, John Piper uh, makes this comment bit of a paraphrase as to I guess what we're talking about here this morning he says this Jesus turns to us and says the whole scroll the whole law and the prophets the whole history of redemption and all my father's plans and acts hang on two great sovereign purposes of God wow anyone like to know what those two great sovereign purposes of God are I'm sure some of you guessed it. So Piper continues, he says this, that God to be be loved by his creation, that God be loved by his creation, and that they love one another as they love themselves. They love each other as they love themselves. He goes on, that humans love God with all their heart, and that from the overflow of that love, We love each other. Pretty powerful, isn't it? Passionate followers of Christ. And in this passage that Piper's referred to, you know he's referring to this particular story in in Matthew chapter 22, where one of the Pharisees tested Jesus with this. And this is the conversation that Jesus had. Matthew 22, 34 to 40. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, The Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested Jesus with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. The second is like it. Love your neighbour as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So here's a question. How do you and I demonstrate that we do genuinely love the Lord with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind and our neighbour as ourselves? How do we actually demonstrate that? I mean, anyone can say, and you may have heard them say, yeah, I love the Lord. I love Easter eggs as well. You heard people say that, I love the Lord, but their lifestyle just doesn't seem to add up, doesn't match the words. The words don't match the actions. How do we actually demonstrate the reality of, of our love for Christ, his love for us? What does it mean to love God? Well, we've just heard it read, haven't we? Jesus sums it up pretty well for us in one of the readings that we've just had. Let me just go through it quickly with you. Turn to John 14 with me. Look at verse 15. I'm just going to read a couple of verses. What does it mean to love God? Jesus says this, verse 15 of John 14. If you love me, keep my commandments. Keep my commands. Verse 15, verse 21. Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them and show myself to them. 
Now look at verse 22, 23, 24. Jesus replied, Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them and we will come to them and make our home with them. Verse 24, anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. It's pretty simple in some ways, isn't it? How do we know we love Jesus? How do we demonstrate that? Well, we keep his commands. How does a person, how can we tell if a person really loves the Lord Jesus Christ with all their heart, mind, soul, strength and their neighbours themselves? Again, very simply, they do what Jesus says. They keep his commands. And it's really what this, this is the series that we're about to go in. It's about the commands of Jesus. It's looking at this whole concept over the next several weeks, actually. That's the series that we're talking about, the commands of Jesus. And again, I just want to make reference to uh, the book that John Piper has written called uh, What Jesus Demands from the World. Some of our life group leaders have had this link sent out to them already. Um, if you're here this morning and you haven't got one or you'd like that link, just flick me an email and I'll send you the link where you have access to free access, which I don't understand that, but you can do it legally, uh, to this whole book online. I bought it myself, uh, but you can have access to it. So flick me an email if you'd like the copy of John Piper's book for your life group or just for yourself. That's okay. So questions again. Another question. How do we? So how does a person come to love the Lord Jesus in the first place? Might seem a bit of a dumb question, but I want you to think about it. How does a person actually come to love the Lord Jesus in the first place? What happens? You see, we all know, we all know that Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. We know that. We know that we're loved by God, don't we? The Bible tells us that. John 3.16, prime, classic, well known, learnt off by heart, scripture. Gospel in a nutshell in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. That whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Amen. And it's true that God loves every person in the world, but it's just as true that not every person loves God. And the other thing which I find interesting too is that we also learn from Scripture that no one, no one can come to know the Lord Jesus unless the Father God enables them to come. This is an incredible thing. I just need you to try and also get hold of this, that this is a Holy Spirit thing that happens in conversion from the start to the end. It's all of the Holy Spirit. It's not just someone saying, oh, yeah, yeah I think I might just come to know Jesus today. Probably pretty good. It doesn't work like that. This is a Holy Spirit thing that we're talking about. God alone enables a person to come to Christ. It isn't interesting. You can't come to the Father except through Jesus as well but listen to this listen to what Jesus said in John 6 and verse 65 Jesus said this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the father has enabled them powerful stuff this is all of God this is all of the spirit 
This enabling, which is of the Spirit of God, results in two critical events or actions that God brings us to in our lives. And one of those critical events, one of those actions, just happens to be the very first demand that Jesus made in his public ministry. Anyone guess what that is? It's going to come up on the screen, I think, any minute. It's repent. Repent. Matthew 4, verse 17. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent. For the kingdom of heaven has come near. Repent. The other demand that Jesus makes upon humanity, which I want to talk about briefly this morning as well, is we are to believe in him. But I want to talk about, firstly, this whole concept of repentance. Jesus, who calls those to come, who would follow him, as the Father enables that to happen, he calls us to repent. What does it mean to repent? There's two Greek words in the New Testament translated repentance. One of them means a change of mind, a 180 degree, degree turn, a change of mind or a renewing of life. That's what the first uh, Greek word of repentance means the New Testament Greek word. The other one means sorrow or regret. Let me add more to this because this is important. Sorrow and regret, and I'll, and I'll mention more about that later on. That sin, well, sorrow about what? That sin has been committed and that we have hurt the heart of God. We've offended God. That's what the other one actually means. And in this verse that we're talking about here this morning, Jesus is referring to the first one that I mentioned. It's about a change of mind or a renewing of life. And again, keep saying it, this is a work of the Holy Spirit. You can't convince anybody to follow Jesus. And that's why you can say to somebody, they say, don't you try to convert me. You can say, I can never convert you. This is a work of God. If I could convert you, then I could unconvert you. When the Holy Spirit converts you and you're his, you're his for eternity. It's the work of the Holy Spirit, not of man. Repentance. Now listen, I'm sure you've heard this before. Let's just remind ourselves if you have. Repentance is not regret for being found out or caught in the act. It's not about being sorry for self. Not about self-pity that you got found out, caught out or whatever. But it is a deep inward change of heart that recognises and regrets our sin against God. That again is the work of the Spirit of God. When you and I, before we met the Lord Jesus, we'd go off and do our own thing, we'd sin, we'd do whatever. It doesn't matter, who cares? No issue. Maybe a bit of conscience stuff, but we get over that. But when you and I who know Jesus now and sin, and we know, and we know because the Spirit points to it, it hurts. It hurts, why? Because we know we've hurt the Father. We know we've hurt and offended Jesus. John Piper, he calls this an assault on God. Powerful, isn't it? Repentance, where the Spirit of God really deals with you, you know you have done an assault on God. 
And we know, we know there's a lot of people, we see it in the news, a lot of people are sorry that they've been caught and convicted for their crimes. But it doesn't necessarily mean that they have actually repented. They're just sorry they got caught and now they're going to go to jail or get a fine or something. Powerful example of repentance in the Old Testament, King David. He knew what it was like to genuinely repent. He knew what it was like to actually bring an assault on God. He was exposed and convicted by God through the prophet Nathan, as you know, after committing adultery with Bathsheba and all the other stuff, the lies he went through, having her husband thrown into the battle and killed, all that stuff. And God convicted him of it. And Psalm 51 is a very powerful psalm of repentance. And I just want to read a couple of verses. <clears throat> psalm 51, 3 and 4. For I know my transgressions. This is what King David says. After God had brought this conviction through his prophet. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. This part of Psalm 51. Good psalm to read, folks. Sometimes we know we've done it wrong. It's a good psalm to read. And it's a good one to also recognise in that, that, oh, Jesus, thank you for your shed blood on the cross that cleanses me from all sin. But it's a powerful psalm to read when you know that you've done something that God has been disproved of and you know in your heart you've assaulted him. Read Psalm 51 for confession, repentance crying out to forgiveness, knowing that we've broken God's heart. And that's the difference between that as opposed to being sorrowful for self-pity and other kinds of stuff relating to self that you've been found out. Can you see the difference that we're talking about here? Between genuine godly sorrow and just sorrow for self that you've had to do it tough. And the Apostle Paul explains it this way, and he uses this other term, obviously. 2 Corinthians 7.10 says this, Godly sorrow. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. There you go. There's a difference. Worldly sorrow, well, that doesn't, that'll bring death. True repentance, where you know you've done the assault on God, where you know you've offended him, and you confess that, and you repent of that, and you ask his forgiveness, and you just claim the blood of Jesus that cleanses you, that leads to life, life, eternal life, repentance. Remember how Jesus also, uh, in his prayer, as he taught the disciples the Lord's Prayer, as we know it, as part of that prayer, he prays these significant words, where he teaches his disciples to pray these significant words, forgive us of our sins. Who's he praying it to? To the Father. Forgive us of our sins. In other words, my paraphrase, Lord, we repent and we ask for your forgiveness for we have sinned against you. So, Father, forgive me of my sin against you as we forgive others that we've also trespassed and sinned against and so on. <clears throat> God's Spirit leads us that way. Now, hear this. This is important. It all is. There is a universal need to repent. 
There is not one single living being on the face of this earth, earth, never has been, never will be, apart from Christ, obviously, who does not need to repent. It is a universal need to repent. No one is excluded from this demand of Christ. Why is this? Well, for the simple reason that Paul declares in Romans chapter 3, verse 22 to 23, where he says these words, There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We need to know these verses, friends. <laughs> need to memorise them, at least know where they come from, because when you are discussing these with your people, with your friends, with your relatives, with your colleagues, and that conversation comes up, and God will sometimes bring those divine appointments to you when you least expect it. It's good to be armed with these verses. When someone says, yeah, but I'm, I'm not a bad person. I mean, this person did. They're worse than I am. I'm not such a bad person. And you can say, but in God's standards, this is what the Bible says. For all have sinned and we all fall short of the glory of God. So you can share those things. All have sinned. Therefore, all need to repent. That includes you and me. Includes you and me. So could I just ask at this point, you know, I might be talking to someone here this morning and the Lord's saying to your heart, you need to repent. I don't know, that's between you and God, but is there someone here this morning and you're hearing God say to you, you need to repent. You need to repent so that, I, so that you can receive my forgiveness and be set free and be cleansed and be forgiven. But God may be saying to you, you need to repent. And if you're hearing God say that to your heart, you need to do something about that. Those who love God do what? They keep his commands. John Piper explains this, explains it like this. He says, so the demand of Jesus to repent goes out to all the nations. It comes to us. Whoever we are and wherever we are, and lays this claim on us. This is the demand of Jesus to every soul. Repent. Be changed deep within. Replace all God dishonouring, Christ belittling, perceptions and dispositions and purposes with, exchange that with, God treasuring, Christ exalting ones. And that won't happen until you repent and you confess and get right with God. Be transparent. Be naked before God. Let him see you. He does anyway. There's nothing about you he doesn't know about. You cannot cover up anything or hide anything from God. He sees it all. But you need healing and you need to be cleansed and you need to repent and get right with God. And ask for his forgiveness. That's why Jesus sacrificed his life on the cross to do exactly that, to forgive you and restore you to an eternal fellowship with him. You know, when God brings you to that genuine place of repentance, you can be sure that he'll also give you the desire, the Holy Spirit-given desire, faith and enabling by the Spirit of God to believe in him. To believe in him and to follow him passionately. Just like that young guy who just took off probably. Needs to be a passionate follower of Jesus. 
One of our precious little children, oh, look, I don't know. She'd be about 10, I think. Comes to this church, don't want to name her because I didn't ask her if I could do this. I'm just going to tell you that one of our precious little kids wrote a prayer out and she put it on the card, the information card that we talked about a couple of weeks ago, and she put it in one of those little boxes. You can do that today if you want to. But she wrote this prayer out. I'm going to read it exactly how she wrote it. This is how she did it. She's only this little kid. Beautiful. She says, Dear Lord, thanks that you died for us. Please help people who don't know you become to know you. Thanks for compassion. This little girl writes these prayers often. They're just gorgeous. How beautiful is a child's prayer? And you know, even a child knows that those who don't know the Lord Jesus need to know him. They need to believe on him who loved us and gave himself for us. So they need to repent and they need to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ who gave his life for us. Even a child knows that. So why does Jesus demand that we believe in him? Quite simply because he knows that the whole of humanity is suffering a terminal condition that has a 100% mortality rate and it's called sin and it leads to death. Inevitable. You cannot escape that. John Piper calls it that all human beings are in a desperate situation. And it's so true. We are all in a desperate situation. And it's because of our sin which puts us under the wrath and condemnation of a holy and a just God. And the one and only, and you need to hear this, know this, the one and only answer is believing in the Lord Jesus Christ who died on the cross in our place, bearing in himself the wrath of God in our place. No one else has ever done that. No one else can ever do that. No one else will ever do that. Jesus and Jesus alone is the one we need to believe on. For it was only he who went to the cross. Listen to what the word of God says about this desperate situation that you and I are in. This was read to us as well before, I think. Yes, I think it was. Maybe not. John 3, 16. We all know that. I read that to you before. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. We know that off by heart, don't we? Sometimes we even rattle it off a bit. But do we know the next part's off by heart? I haven't quite learned that myself yet. But listen to this. For God, verse 17, For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. Then verse 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. And as you can see up here on the screen, I want you to notice all the whoever believes aspects of what I've just read to you. Whoever believes, look what happens. Verse 16, whoever believes in him shall not perish. Verse 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned. Verse 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. What amazing promises we have from God's word. That's the ones who believe. Repent and believe on the Lord Jesus. And of course, 
If that's true, then the opposite is true, is it not? For example, whoever does not believe in him shall perish. Whoever does not believe in him is condemned. Whoever does not believe in the Son has not eternal life, but eternal damnation. And we don't often like to preach those things, and some people don't even like to hear those things. It might be offensive. But it's the truth of the gospel, and we all need to know that. We all need to hear that, and we all need to act on that and share it with others. To believe in Jesus means also that we firstly... So what does it really mean? Well, it, it firstly means that we believe certain historical facts about Christ as presented to us in the scripture. For example, to believe in Jesus means that we accept and we believe the fact that Jesus died for our sins, that he was buried and that on the third day he rose again from the dead according to the scriptures, just like Paul spoke about in 1 Corinthians 15 verses 3 and 4. So it means firstly that, that we believe these facts about Christ. We believe the Bible. We believe what the scripture teaches us. The second thing that comes into play when we believe on the Lord Jesus is that we trust him. We trust him. We receive him. We begin to experience relationship with Jesus. You see, the devil and all the demons believe in Jesus. Well, what's the difference? They tremble with fear because they know that they're under condemnation. They know the day is coming when they will be eternally damned, if you like, thrown into the lake of fire. They know who Jesus is. They believe him all right, and they shudder with fear. Unlike the believer who has repented and believed on Christ and knows that he loved us, gave his life for us, and we have accepted him. We love him, and we look forward to relationship with him. We look forward to that day that we will be with him forever. That's the difference. We trust him with our lives, with every single dimension of our lives. We don't leave something in the box and say, Jesus, you can have all this. I believe in you for this, but this one, no, thanks. No, I'm going to leave that one there. We open up our lives to him completely. We say, Lord, here I am. All that I am, all that I have is yours. We trust him. We know him personally and we have an authentic, life-enriching relationship with Jesus Christ. Can I ask you this morning, is that your experience? Do you know Jesus in that personal way? Is he yours? Is he one of your sheep? Is, is, is you one of his sheep? Is he your shepherd? You see, it's not about being religious with Christ. It's about being relational with him. It's not about being religious with Jesus. It's about being relational with him. And that's why we have Jesus giving us these very sobering words of warning in Matthew 7, verses 21 to 23, where he says this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but only the ones who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say, listen, do you hear that? Many, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not in your name drive out demons and, and in your name perform many miracles? Lord, weren't we religious with you? We did religious things, Lord. We were religious people. 
Look at verse 23. Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away with me, away with you. Away from me, you evildoers, he says. So in other words, what Jesus is saying here is, you may have been very religious in your life. These people were doing religious things. And you may have been very religious with, with Jesus, but you were never relational with him. You never had a relation with him. Jesus said, I never knew you, nor did you really know me. And therefore you remain in your sin and your condemnation. It's sobering stuff, isn't it? And that's what we need to get a handle on, folks, here this morning. You need to know in your heart, where are you with all of this? I want to just close, I guess, um, again, the section that John Piper has this very insightful uh, comment. He says this, Jesus came not to rescue us from, com from condemnation. Sorry, let me read that again. Jesus came not only to rescue us from condemnation, but also that we might enjoy everlasting life, which means that we might experience all that God is for us in him. And then he quotes from John 17, 3. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. John 17, 3. Piper goes on, he says, he knows what we need far better than we do. We need rescue from the wrath of God and we need a soul-satisfying relationship with God. This is what Jesus came to give. It comes to us in one way alone, by believing in him. Therefore, Jesus gives his demand to the world, believe in me. End of quote. And I just simply like to add a couple of other things. When you do believe in him, and many of you have experienced this already, he will give you an eye. He will give you the power and the passion to be a passionate follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. This is what the Spirit of God does. It's his work. It's not yours. Not man. It becomes his. It's his work. He's the one who gives us this desire. He's the one that will give you the passion and the power to be a passionate follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our oh Lord, we thank you for your word to us this morning. and We thank you for the work of the Holy Spirit and all that he does. We just acknowledge how desperately we're in need of you, O oh Lord, each day to meet us. Lord, to equip us. Lord, to remind us and to encourage us to spur us on as children of God and to treasure these wonderful things that you have done for us. To stand amazed again at the price that it cost you. We've freely received from you, but it was at great cost to you. To stand in awe of the cross. To stand in awe of what it cost you, Lord. Done that just recently over Easter. Spur us on, Father, we pray as a church, as a congregation, to treasure these things. And Lord, to so treasure that they just overflow in this love for you that just wants to go and love other people so naturally in the things of the Spirit and to want to share this, with, this truth with those that you bring across our path. 
So we bless your name. We thank you for the things that you do. Thank you for your amazing grace to us. Thank you for your mercy toward us. Thank you that you've given us opportunity to repent and to believe in you. So Lord, help us to take seriously the things you speak to us about today. And we'll bless you for eternity as we commit ourselves to you now. In Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen.